May I now present to you the most polarizing topic in modern America, abortion. The reason I was interested in interviewing Amy is that she's part of a new contingent of pro-life advocates. These groups vary, but all of them share a criticism of the old pro-life guard for one reason or another, or many reasons, and all of them advocate additional policies or attitudes beyond simply protecting fetuses. So one of the things we like to say on this show is that difficult questions never have easy answers. Some of the difficult questions that we discuss on this episode include, when does life begin? At what point does a human embryo receive human rights? Or at what point does it receive constitutional rights? Is a commitment to nonviolence compatible with the act of abortion? I find this a particularly interesting question. Now, Amy is not really a political activist, but more of an ethical or philosophical activist or really just someone interested in ideology, as I think will become clear pretty early on in the episode. So don't expect a ton of policy discussion, but this won't be our final abortion episode, and I'm very interested in getting into more policy questions at a later date, and I plan to. There is a little bit of anatomically explicit language about 30 or 40 minutes in, in case children are listening. Uh, Also, Amy starts with a personal story right at the beginning that includes sexual violence. So that might be another reason to pause this if young kids are in the room. Consider yourself warned. Uh, And while you parents are reaching for the pause button, let me just say that this was a very good conversation. So good. We didn't agree on everything, and certainly many of you guys will not agree with her on plenty of points, but I think that we can all come away from this challenged to think more critically about our views on this incredibly difficult question. Enjoy. So I'm here with Amy Murphy of Life Matters Journal. Amy, I found you because of this big Slate article that was going around, I think last summer or last fall, about kind of the new face of the pro-life movement, which I found fascinating. I'm not going to give too much away because that's your job today, but that's really where I came upon you. Can you give us a little bit of basic background information on, you know, your background and how you ended up running this journal? Sure. So, um, Goodness, my background. I became pro-life at 16 when my on-again, off-again boyfriend, um, we broke up and on Valentine's Day, he raped me. And about a month and a half, two months later, I still haven't had a period. I'm freaking out, right? Um, I'm 16 seriously contemplating abortion. And, um, he tells me that if I don't get an abortion, he'll kill me and then himself. So, um, freaking out. Right. And I, I told him, leave, you know, go away. We'll talk about this another time. But in that moment, I knew something else. Suddenly everything was very clear to me. I was very, unsettled. I knew that if I were to have an abortion, that I would be passing on the same oppression that he was threatening against me, that what he was telling me was, you are inconvenient to me and to my future. Therefore, I am going to kill you. 
That is basically what he was telling me. And what right did I have to tell that same exact thing to a defenseless child? So in that moment, I, I became pro-life. Um, I, I decided that I couldn't use violence to get what I wanted in life. So I went off to college and I became the president of the pro-life club, uh, which had been a very conservative-leaning club, but I'm fairly left-leaning moderate, and um, I, I was really uncomfortable with that. So after about a year and a half of me running the club, we decided to change it to be a consistent life ethic club. Everyone in the club agreed. We all opposed these various different forms of violence. Um, you know, so why just, you know, single out the abortion issue? Why not present this holistic perspective of nonviolence? So what are some of the other planks of a consistent ethic of life besides pro-life? Uh, you know, we oppose the death penalty. We oppose torture, euthanasia, embryonic stem cell research, war, police brutality, assisted suicide, all forms of aggressive violence that are contrary to human dignity. Okay. So you changed it to a consistent life ethic mm -hmm. group. And now you're like 20 or something at this point. Yeah. So I, I was 21 when I left leadership of that club. Like I was still involved. Right. But passing the torch and um, I knew that when I graduated, I couldn't be done. You know, I, I had been forever unsettled by my own personal experience. I couldn't just sit back and watch violence happen to other humans and not do anything about it. So when I graduated about three months later, I had been mulling around different ideas for what to do. Because I saw a very clear lack, uh, you know, a niche that was not being filled in the pro-life movement to reach young people with this consistent ethic of life. So in August of 2011, I was 22, I founded Life Matters Journal. Okay, um, backtracking a little bit, were you actually pregnant? Everyone always wants to know. Um <laughs> So I eventually told my mom and, you know, my mom's crying. My mom calls my dad in. My dad's crying. Everyone's crying. It's a mess. And uh, so my mom takes me to the doctor a couple days later, probably. And I do a urine pregnancy test and it comes up negative. But what had to be like the next day, I had probably the worst period of my life. So... I will never know whether or not I was pregnant yeah. and I, I try not to dwell on it too much. Okay. But you're inferring that it's quite likely you had an early miscarriage. It's definitely possible. Yeah. Cause that is not to get, <laughs> this is not a medical show, but you know, the heavy period is often associated with a very early miscarriage. So, but the point is not that you were pregnant or not. The point is that you clearly saw a similar argument being made by your rapist ex-boyfriend mm -hmm. than the one that you would be making or you, it was a similar kind of an action basically. Right. And so that's the part that's powerful. And I, I don't mean to just dwell on your story forever. Um, mm -hmm. I just, you know, I'm not good with 
not hearing how stories end. Um, okay. So, wow. Well, shit. Okay. So, um, this is good. I don't think we've ever had an episode of this show go so deep so quickly. Uh, thank you for your honesty and vulnerability. Um, so life matters journal. We know why you started it now. What is it? Uh, our vision statement is to bring an end to aggressive violence through education and discourse. So the main work that we do is our magazine. Its function is education, uh, you know, allowing people to talk about issues both from an ethical perspective, but also maybe, you know, we have people who are medical students and people who are law students who, you know, might write about, you know, the, the legal and medical and ethical situation surrounding, say, embryonic stem cell research or abortion or even war. Um, you know, so we try to touch on all these different issues yeah. to, um, you know, really educate on them. And then we also run a conference called Life Peace Justice Conference, where um, not only do we have education there, but we also, you know, in the question and answer period, in our forum period of the of the conference, we allow people to really, you know, talk about things, you know, whether or not they agree, you know, to to really hash it out in a respectful and productive way. I think a lot of our conversations about all these different issues, whether it's abortion or war or torture or euthanasia, are often bogged down by, you know, this really polarizing rhetoric where and people are almost made out to be like enemies. And I don't like considering any human an enemy. Yeah. I think that is almost a dehumanizing way to approach another human. It's much more holistic and much more consonant with human dignity to, um, you know, just, just try to approach another human as you would any other human and stop viewing them as ideological enemies. So um, it's one thing I was really frustrated with being on a college campus is how often pro-choice people would just like yell and scream. And I was like, I don't. I don't want to yell and scream. Like, I'm not going to engage in that. How can we have a productive conversation around these issues? You know, that that's uh, both fruitful and respectful. So, you know, a, a lot of the, the reasoning behind LMJ is because of the experiences that I had as a college student, uh, you know, wanting the, the move, the pro-life movement to be more inclusive and wanting the pro-life movement to be able to have good conversations with people. So it's almost like you're saying that polarization itself actually damages the strength of the arguments that are being made by either side. It somehow gets in the way. It gets in the way mm -hmm. of clear it thinking. It definitely gets in the way. Yeah. 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 Like you, you guys try and have an open dialogue at your gatherings for the sake of not missing something, basically. You're, you're trying to not be myopic. And if people can mm -hmm. speak up, you know, obviously anybody there will agree on some sort of principle of like a consistent ethic of life. But then when it comes to, well, what counts as, as life, what counts as being protected, what, what counts as consistent, 
if you don't allow that kind of a dialogue, then you will surely miss something. I think it's really important for people on all sides of an issue to be willing to be challenged yeah, and be willing to evaluate their position from an honest perspective. Uh, I think people on both sides of, you know, many different issues will tend to view themselves as like the hero of the story. Yeah. Right. And when you do that, you, you can, you know, demonize the other side, but you also put yourself in this unassailable, intractable position where you can never be wrong. And I don't think that's a productive way to go about conversation on any of these issues. You know, you need to be, to be willing to admit when you're wrong, but you also, you know, need to be able to engage with the other side in, in a meaningful way and not just, you know, with yelling and screaming and things like that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I agree with you so much about this issue of polarization and being open to other sides that I started a podcast about it. So obviously (laughs) we're in good company and you're also kind of hinting at the fact that abortion is probably the most polarized issue in America today. I I, I would agree with that. Yeah. And I mean, I think that the data shows that objectively, even if someone, if you don't agree with that listener, you're you're just probably wrong. It it is the most, it, it just is the most polarized issue in America. And, uh, I don't normally tell people they're wrong, but this one's pretty clear. And there's something that someone who airs pro-life can see about the pro-choice side at times where it's like it can become so dogmatic, you know, abortion on demand um, and free is, is sort of like saying, like, let's say you were advocating for gays in the military. It's like, not only do we want gays in the military, we want conscription stations in the Castro district. You know, we want like, we want a armed forces recruitment center next to every gay nightclub. Be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, okay, hold on. So to want gays to be able to be in the military is one thing to then sort of push for as many gays in the military as possible. Seems like a, maybe like an overreach in terms of at least something to really get behind. I mean, you might think the military could really use some gay officers or something. You might have some reason for wanting that, but most people would not say, well, the the end goal is like as many gays in the military as possible. That would be a weird argument to make. And so when it appears that a pro-choice advocate is basically saying as many abortions as we can, if it seems like they're doing that, it's, it's kind of, there's a weird disconnect there, right? By the way, I hope I'm the first person to ever use that argument analogy with you. <laughs> I mean, I think the the main issue I have with your argument is just like why should anyone be in the military? But okay, but uh, all right, you understand what I'm saying, though. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. If you're a pacifist, that's okay. But you understand there's a, there's a difference between wanting something to be allowable and wanting something to happen regularly. Right. 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 So. There's some stuff I want to ask you about that open dialogue, but only if we have time. So let's go back Mm -hmm. to you came in and you said this is going to be a consistent ethic of life group. How in your mind and in the minds of people who agree with you, let's say I'm a listener and I'm just like a 
standard Republican pro-choice person, but I have never really considered the death penalty or pacifism or, you know, probably euthanasia and stem cell research are pretty well established as, as pro-life positions at this point for those who are paying attention. But, but why death penalty? Why war? Why these other issues? Did you mean to say a standard Republican pro-life person? I did. What did I say? Pro-choice? You said pro-choice. I meant pro-life, yeah. Okay. It's cool. I mean, I know Republican pro-choice people, but... But um, they're not standard. <laughs> that's for sure. True. I just wanted to know who I'm, who I'm addressing. Yes, yeah. Standard pro-life, so, yeah. So, the death penalty in war. I mean, the, the basic position that we have as an organization is that every human being has an intrinsic inherent worth. Okay. As uh, as members of the human species, like all we, we think all human beings deserve human rights. They're they're not born rights, they're not white rights, they're not, you know, only in America rights, they're not rich rights, they're human rights. And because of that, we believe that all human beings due to this intrinsic inherent worth deserve to live lives free from violence, that violence is contrary to our inherent dignity. That being said, the death penalty, uh, specifically from a conservative perspective, I've had a number of friends who have been pro-life who actually changed their position on the death penalty. One was because she heard a presentation from Kirk Bloodsworth who was the first person to be exonerated from death row using DNA evidence. Yeah. Uh, so, so he's an innocent guy who brought in, convicted, and put on death row. And she was so moved by his story because, uh, you know, not only was he an innocent person, but he also realized and supported the dignity of all these other prisoners who were on death row as well. So not saying that they should all, people who are murderers and can be proven to be, um, not that they should all be running free per se, but that their dignity demands that we not do them violence, especially because the government, like if you're a conservative and you're distrustful of the government, like how much sense does it make to give the government like the biggest power to kill people? Right. And especially if you're distrustful of the government's ability to like separate fact from fiction, which right. I think is a pretty common critique is that the government tends to get things wrong. It's not as mm -hmm. efficient and it's not as like the market dictates that a corporation do a good job of assessing the facts, because if it gets it wrong, it will be punished monetarily mm -hmm. because some other company will get it right and will create a better product or whatever. And the, one of right. the critiques of the federal government is it doesn't do a very good job of that. Uh, it's not incentivized to get the facts. It's just incentivized to like either do what's in its interest or some political mm -hmm. maneuvering that it thinks will be in its interest. And so to then give the reins of life and death to the government from a conservative standpoint, it does seem to be problematic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I've heard two arguments against the death penalty from a religious perspective, or actually mm -hmm. one of them is, one of them's not. The first argument I heard was the Bible never authorizes a government to take the life of a person. The only time that the life of a person is taken in the Bible is directly through God. God has that right, but no man ever has that right. 
And then the second argument I heard, which is more what I'm hearing from you, I've heard many times, is that it's just never worth it to potentially kill an innocent person. Um, and we have so many examples of people being exonerated from death row that statistically we are completely blinding ourselves if we pretend that that doesn't happen. Then the attendant sub-argument to that is that generally speaking, it is cheaper to keep someone in custody for their whole life than it is to kill Mm -hmm. them anyway. So it not only saves money, but it avoids the possibility of executing innocent people. And so it seems to be a slam dunk case if that's true. He sounds like you would agree. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, my stance, of course, is not only like the risk of killing innocents, but that's definitely a persuasive argument for conservative people. Generally speaking, is that as long as we're human, we're fallible, we run the risk of killing innocent people using the death penalty. So shouldn't we use a more nonviolent option if we have it to still keep our society safe? Right. And the idea being that someone who's locked up forever is the same as dead in terms of safety for the rest of the country. I think the only argument, the only place you could potentially push back and where some people might want to push back is death penalty as a deterrent. And so I don't, I don't know. I don't have an opinion about that, but that, that'd be one area where if people could show that it actually Mm -hmm. deters crime, then you could potentially make an argument that fewer crimes will be committed if the death penalty exists. I I don't know that that's been shown by any studies, but if it could be shown, that'd be interesting. Right. I mean, there's a similar argument for abortion, actually, that abortion prevents crime. Freakonomics actually made this argument. They technically didn't make it, but they did show the correlation in the the book. I read that. Yeah. But then the question becomes, is it ever okay to scapegoat an innocent human in order to provide safety or peace for other people and uh well, having scapegoat is too soft of a word we're actually talking about right ending life whether or not you think uh, like in the case of an inmate it's an actual life in the case mm-hmm. of a fetus it is at least a potential life so it's not really i think scapegoating is too soft of a word we're not we're not putting the blame on someone we're actually saying this person or potential person will be removed on the hopes or plan that it will increase the quality of life for everyone who remains. Have you read Ursula Le Guin's Ones Who Walk Away from Omelot? I have not read that. You absolutely need to. Let's put it in the show notes. What is this, a book or an essay? It's a short story. It's like a page and a half long. What I is it called? Like. It's, it's the Ones Who Walk Away from Omelot. Okay. We're going to put this, if we can find a web version, we're going to put this in the show notes. I can can send it to you. Okay. So, no, I haven't read it. Tell me about the short story. I mean, it's basically all about this city, Omelas, that is like this idyllic, wonderful city. And you find out that there's a child that's basically being held in a small cell and treated like garbage. And it's understood that this child needs to be there and treated as a subhuman creature, like not even really as a creature, um, in order for society to remain as peaceful and idyllic and wonderful as it is. Yeah, it's, it's a, 
interesting and very thought provoking story. And I find it very interesting that Ursula Le Guin is actually, I think she's very pro choice. And so the question is then like, how, how can you support this form of societal, I mean, scapegoating, but I mean, obviously worse than just mere scapegoating, this form of scapegoating as violence Hmm. um, in order for our society to remain as wonderful as it is. Yeah, I just think that the double standard, I think, is very interesting. So the story's great. (laughs) Okay, so what are the actual planks of your organization's platform? Is is there a platform? Like, these are the policies we advocate? Or is it more open-ended than that? Our mission statement, so, like, it's it's not, like, plank or platform, per se, because we're not a political organization. You know, our whole thing is education we don't really get too involved in any sort of legislative stuff so if you're educating then answer it this way what are you trying or hoping to educate people about specifically at its center at its core is this ethical philosophy that values human beings as the central part of ethical questions Okay. So it's sometimes called personalism. It's sometimes sometimes called humanism. Um, there are different ways to look at it. You know, there are different religions that come to the same conclusion, including, you know, Catholicism, Anabaptism, Buddhism, even actually would support this philosophy of nonviolence. So, you know, at, at its core is education about this ethical philosophy from a philosophical perspective. And then going outwards from that are the policy concerns related to issues of violence. So abortion, euthanasia, unjust war, torture, the death penalty, embryonic stem cell research, assisted suicide, police brutality, abuse, human trafficking, you know, all these different issues. We want to educate on what is happening, you know, how we can address it and you know, depending on the author, they might talk about the history of the issue or the history of policy. So that's the education part and then okay. our our discourse part. So. so, okay. So what that says to me then is really you guys are making an ethical philosophical argument as opposed to being, say, an organization who primarily seeks to reduce the number of abortions. Like that would be a different kind of a organization, right? Uh, probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I get what you're saying. Like if I was going to start an organization whose main goal was to reduce the number of abortions, the first thing on my agenda would be like, not ideological, it would be like empirical. What mm-hmm. things reduce abortions? And then I would mm-hmm. advocate for those things or, or something like that. Right. Right. So you said earlier that you felt like there was something missing within the pro-life movement. You called it a niche, but I think you, you kind of meant it also logically. So would you say that what was missing was some clear thinking about the ethical and philosophical basis for a pro-life stance? In short, yes. I I think a lot of the older guard of the pro-life movement has been very adamant, you know, like we're anti-abortion, especially like very recently, this has become a thing. The, you know, they've been saying, you know, we're anti-abortion. We're trying to use this language anti-abortion instead of pro-life. 
And and I honestly do not understand that perspective of only only addressing abortion and not understanding that this respect for human dignity and all that underlies it is really necessary to a truly pro-life perspective. I feel like they're, you know, they're, they're almost admitting we're not pro-life, we're anti-abortion. Hmm. And that's a very interesting concession for me to see. And it's, it's a huge reason why I'm glad that, that we exist because I was worried that that was already happening. It has just now been confirmed to me through the actions of some various different, you know, big pro-life organizations that are saying, you know, we're anti-abortion. Like, yes, I'm anti-abortion the same way I'm anti-war. But why am I those things? Yeah. And I think that's a necessary conversation that we need to have outside of the realm of politics. Like, sure, you politics is a context, but it's not like we as pro-lifers belong to the Republican Party you know, one in three Democrats is pro-life. So when we look at it as this philosophy that is understandable to anyone, regardless of their political background, their religious background, you know, whether they're gay, straight, trans, cis, um, you know, like whether they're black, white, Latina, it's an understandable philosophy. And I think we need to get back to that core instead of you know, being, having this, this fetus tunnel vision, you know, fetus tunnel vision. <laughs> I did not coin that. Okay. Who, who coined that? Probably Mark Shea. Okay. Here's the part where I bug you about the Patreon campaign that I've started for this show. You can go to patreon.com slash depolarize there's also a button at depolarizedpodcast.com. It starts at only three bucks a month. You get a bunch of exclusive content, something every month, whether it be an additional conversation I've had with someone or an online chat with all the patrons and myself. Um, it's also just a way to financially support this thing if you think it's valuable. Patreon.com slash depolarize or depolarizedpodcast.com. When you talk about a consistent ethic of life, are you getting into things like healthcare, you know, or maternity leave, or um, the, the there are there are these things that have been proven to reduce abortions, or anyway, studies seem to show pretty conclusively that like you can reduce abortions through these certain things, and one of them is paid maternity leave, another one is more accessible contraception especially like IUDs, which are more effective than condoms, for instance. Where do you guys fall on those questions? Or is there no official line? Uh, so like, as an organization, our, our main mission statement, of course, is opposition to violence. Yeah. So if, if it falls outside of that purview, I think we have people from lots of different backgrounds who come from you know, different political persuasions who you know, might support different policies. Because, like, we don't take a position on nonviolent things. Like, we're not going to stand in the way of nonviolent healthcare options like contraception. And, like, on a personal level, I absolutely support access to, you know, all nonviolent forms of healthcare. I, for one, personally support not only maternity leave, but family leave. Like, 
maternity and paternity yeah. leave. I think building this this culture of life means you know, building a society where the wombless male body is not seen as normative because that is currently the case is, you know, like the, the ideal career person or really the ideal, anything generally speaking is male. Yeah. And when you look at it as well, Oh, well, if, if the ideal career person is male, then obviously the ideal career person can't get pregnant doesn't have to deal with the physical burdens of pregnancy and doesn't have to deal with the stereotypes of like, Oh, when, when you have a child, you're obviously going to quit, you know, it doesn't have to deal with this pregnancy discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. So we, I think we need to, to flip that whole narrative and stop accepting that paradigm is true. Yeah. Because we have, Obviously, you know, you have the wombless male body and the wombful female body, and you have these two different experiences that are both entirely valid that need to be part of our discussion of how we support human life and dignity as a society. So there's a lot that goes into that, you know, beyond just, you know, maternity and paternity leave, but... I think it's really all encompassed in this. We need to stop accepting the male body as normative. Well, I want to unpack some more of that as well um, and get to why you believe that this is a feminist move. But so first, let's just clarify that your group is not pushing a policy agenda. It is basically pushing clearer argumentation, clearer uh, ethical conversation and a philosophical foundation for pro-life views. So that's good. Mm-hmm. So then let's talk about when life begins. So are you a life begins a conception person? Are you a viability outside the womb given modern medicine? Uh, does your group draw a line? Do you draw a line? How blurry is that? I'm a believe in science person. You believe, I believe in <laughs> science. Yes. Um, And embryology very clearly tells us that at the moment of fertilization, a, you know, two gametes from same species parents will create a same species offspring that, that at the moment of fertilization, it's a, it's a new member of that same parent species. So it's not even a question. It's just like, okay, well, a human being's life begins at the moment of fertilization. You're saying that's when, that's when a third entity enters the picture. Correct. Okay. Which, of course... And I, I, that, that's not me saying it. No, no, that's... Okay, I, it's obviously right. true. <laughs> it's obviously true that a group of two becomes, like, a, there's a third something that comes into being at the moment of fertilization. That's definitely true. There's no way around that. Right. You're an activist, and so... I'm not expecting you to depolarize us thoroughly on this question, and that's fine. I will do a little bit of the, you know, devil's advocate here because that's my job. So someone could still say, well, great, but also like, oh, man, I was just going <laughs> to use a crude example. I'm going to try and think of a less crude example. Um, it's okay. Use the crude example. We, ha- we have a video about it. Okay. Uh, here's my Dude. crude example. My crude example <laughs> is... If I ejaculate, mm-hmm. my testicles <laughs> produce new sperm and new Correct. fluid. And right. I could also say, 
well, at the moment of ejaculation is when like my body starts to make more of it. Like that is biological matter, but it is not rights bearing. Or for instance, a tumor in a person's body is biological matter. It is like a third party organism, but it's not rights bearing. So there is still a question and I'm I'm not giving like the best arguments here. I'm just I'm just no. trying to <laughs> off the top of my head. I'm just saying, you know, organic life occurs in plants as well. You, you're just sure. you're just saying it's not the fact that it's a, a clump of cells. It's kind of like the fact that this is where the the tree of life branches off into a discrete entity is the moment of fertilization. Right. So like b- before fertilization, the sperm, right? Like. Any man's ejaculate matter is a gamete. It's a haploid cell. So it's 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 not you, going to live on a, its own. Who are you calling a haploid cell? <laughs> just just ejaculate. Not okay. Yet. Okay. Um, the same way that uh, an oocyte or an ovum is also a haploid cell. So it's not going to be able to live on its own. It you know like it as organic matter. It doesn't have this same sort of internalized development. So at the moment of fertilization, when the oocyte and the sperm fuse, it creates a new creature. And for humans, it's obviously, it's a human. It's not an elephant. It's not a rock. It's not a tree, right? Yeah. It's it's another human. So there's a you know big biological difference there. I think the question that a lot of people get tripped up on is not like we treat it as like, when does life begin? Right. But I think the, the real question is when does meaningful life begin Sure. or when does life begin? That should be protected. Yeah. Rights bearing life or something like that. Right. Right. Because like the biological question is, or it's been answered a million times by scientists. So then the question is, is there some metric by which we determine work other than humanness? Like, is there, is there a reason to discriminate against certain classes of human beings and say, you human beings over here don't deserve certain rights? Is there a good reason for that, for the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and property slash pursuit of happiness. Right. So one category would be like humans with disabilities. Are we going to afford them all the same rights that humans without disabilities have? Right. So at this point in the argument, you're still treating, it sounds like you're treating, you know, a one day old zygote fetus, whatever it is, as a human, whereas to use some of your language earlier, it can't survive on its own. It will eventually be able to survive on its own, but for quite a while, it still needs like everything that the womb gives it or the mother's body gives it. Right, but its uh, its processes are driven by internal development. Okay, so you're so trying like, to make a you're making a delineation between internal process or like self propelled processes of mm-hmm. a discrete being growing inside. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mm-hmm. not apply to a tumor? Is a tumor not self-propelled, just leaching whatever material it can from your blood and you know whatever? Right. So the thing I'm of about, course not saying right, that, that a zygote like, is like, a tumor. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you are 
correct in saying that a tumor has like this almost self-propelled development, right? However, the the life of the tumor is different in as much as it is not a unique being. And you might even uh, you might even make a sort of a theistic argument here and say, look, the world is full of organisms that show God's creativity and glory that bring joy and add meaning to the world. And then there are other organisms that for whatever reason, God allows them to thrive that bring chaos and disorder that end life that destroy joy and beauty. You could make that argument anyway. That's where my brain went of like, yeah. So even if it's true that a tumor and a young embryo share that same property of being self-propelled and requiring nutrients from their host organism that you can still delineate between sort of like a chaotic thing and an ordered loving thing but you you'd need a you need a second argument for that i guess you're kind of you're yeah, kind of I mean, looking I'm, at me I'm very not, suspiciously i'm not comfy with that okay <laughs> Just because, like, it, the you know, the question always comes up, like, well, would you abort Hitler? And my answer is always no, because Hitler, when he was a fetus, didn't do anything wrong. Like, mm. it, it, it'd be an act of aggressive violence against a human that hadn't done anything wrong the same way that, like, all abortion is that. So, yeah, interesting. So, I, I'm not I'm not comfortable being like, oh, well, this causes death and destruction now or eventually. So, oh, interesting. I, I guess I was not I wasn't saying that cancerous tumors are morally culpable for right. death and destruction, which is what you'd have to say about baby Hitler in your version. Right. I was more saying like there are views of the world in which God is just against things like cancer but but nonetheless allows it for whatever reason so i was just i'm kind of just riffing okay 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 um, <laughs> i like theology okay so i think I, i'm pretty much getting your argument here and and people can of course go on to lifematters.org is that the website life matters journal life matters org and and read some more of the mission statement and, and sort of the arguments behind it let's let's pivot a bit to Considering the pro-choice movement and then the Trump administration. Oh, boy. Yeah. So here's my depolarizing question for you. What about the pro-choice movement is on to something? I, I have a feeling you're going you're gonna to mention some feminist kind of stuff here because you're wearing a shirt that says, this is what a pro-life feminist looks like. <laughs> so what about the pro- – I, I would assume you would say there's, there's some feminist thought in the pro-choice movement that is – totally on. Tell us about that and anything else that, that you like about that movement or even that movement historically in the past. Well, I would actually consider the feminist movement to be like bigger. The feminist movement is not a product of the pro-choice movement. The feminist movement right. pre-existed the pro-choice movement. Um, right. But I do absolutely appreciate the fact that there are pro-choice feminists. Um, I think that there is a, a stronger and more visible presence of feminism amongst pro-choice individuals, which I very much appreciate, especially as someone who 
you know, like is a rape and sexual assault survivor. Um, I think it's really important that we, you know, speak out against rape culture and work to create a culture that affirms the dignity of women. Something that I love to see about like the, the broader feminist movement is this movement for intersectionality. And it's something that I think is really necessary. Um, not only in the, you know, the, the more mainstream feminist movement, but it's something that I really push for in the pro-life circles as well. What do you mean when you say that? For example, there's, there's this great story in the, the suffrage movement and evidence of why intersectionality is necessary. So back in the day, it's a women's suffrage march in Washington, D.C. And, you know, like, so all these wonderful suffragists in the U.S. are working to get the right to vote for women. And they have this big parade. And at first it was going to be integrated. You know, black women could march right alongside white women. And then there was some uproar in the movement. And so the head people of the women's suffrage march told the black women that they had to march at the back. Hmm. Because, you know, there's this idea in the, in the women's suffrage movement that, you know, like women's right to vote but not at the cost of like, they're basically like, well, if, if we can't get everyone, like every women's right to vote, we should have white women's right to vote first. And then like, we can work on black yeah, we'll, women. We'll go from there. Yeah. Right. This need for intersectionality and understanding that the plight of women of color as women is so necessary to understanding like this isn't just a movement of white women. It isn't just a movement of straight women. It isn't just a movement of rich women. It is a movement of all women, you know, that this need for intersectionality, understanding that different situations of rights really do come together and intersect in big ways. There's a, a wonderful woman, Cecily Smith, who works with New Wave Feminists and Doulas for Life, who tells this wonderful story about how she got involved doing pro-life things, you know, and, and how she got involved being a doula. And it's because she understands, she, she, she began to see that maternal mortality rates amongst women of color was much higher than for white women. And she began to ask why. Why is that the case? Especially because abortion rates are also higher amongst women of color. So she began to see like how these different issues were intersecting herself as a woman of color um, and how she could address the injustice of discrimination in birthing situations or discrimination in reproductive health care and things like that. You know, where it isn't just a question of our are white women having access to these great things, but are, are poor women having access to these things and are, are women of color having access to these things? It seems to me this is why you're drawn to the philosophy and the ethics behind it, because you see the intersectionality of various types of rights and you want a cohesive worldview that will push for all of those rights rather than say, 
a more politically focused, pragmatic approach to fix a problem. Is that right? Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely an idealist. Uh, I would say that's definitely true. I'm not just focused on one policy, but I'm focused on building a culture that really does understand human dignity. Well, you're also, a, I mean, you're a philosopher, really. You're, you're, when I ask you about, no, I mean, you are, and that's, that's what my degree is in. I can call you that. I have authority to, to <laughs> pronounce who and who isn't a philosopher. No, but when I ask you, I try and I ask you this, like, you know, technical question and you respond with ethics and like the theory behind it. I mean, you, you are bent that way and, and sounds like so is your, your journal, which I think is great. I mean, there's, there's room. We, we need all of it, right? We need people who mm-hmm. do the theory and then we need people who live out the theory. And then we need doulas, which by the way, I love that their group is called doulas for life. I understand that that means doulas for life as in a consistent ethic of life. Uh-huh. But I'm just imagining uh-huh. like motorcycle jackets that are like, like we're going to be doulas forever. <laughs> I am a doula for <laughs> life, man. I love being a doula. I know. Oh, there's a group called Students for Life. And every time oh, no. I hear about them, I'm like, I do not want to be a student forever. Yeah, no. right. No. Well, there's you could mean that in like a broad sense. Okay, so getting at this feminism question, mm-hmm. here is an argument from the women's lib movement from the 70s. Mm-hmm. Abortion is necessary for the liberation of women because abortion and birth control are the two most effective ways that women can pursue their own particular goals, whether or not those are career-driven. Well, especially if they're career-driven, right, and don't include having children. These are extremely effective ways to ensure that women can actualize their own goals for their life rather than whatever goals men have for them or their husband has for them, especially if their husband is maybe abusive or not you know, unkind or whatever. So that's a really common argument. We all know that argument. Why does that argument fail in your mind? Whenever I hear the chant, without our basic rights, women can't be free, abortion on demand and without apology, like that's 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 an old chant, right? Whenever I hear it, I just cringe. I'm like, abortion is a tool of the patriarchy. Abortion helps perpetuate cycles of violence it helps men walk away from abusive situations or continue abusing by the way like i i understand the idea like women want to be able to achieve career success to you know achieve whatever kind of success they want and sometimes children don't fit into that picture super well I think that also is a product of the fact that we have a culture that, you know, views the male body as normative. So I, I think what abortion is, is it's, it's a big cultural band-aid on all of these different issues that we have. If a woman is facing an abusive husband, abortion is not going to solve her problem. Like, uh, often what will happen is, you know, a, a woman who's in an abusive relationship will get an abortion and will go back to her abuser like she'll end up back in the same exact situation but now she has had an abortion you know she she goes back to the same situation but now she might also be grieving the death of her child (sighs) you know i i just 
I feel like it doesn't address the underlying situations that drive women to abortion. It doesn't address poverty. It doesn't address abuse. It doesn't address the, the male normative culture. It doesn't address the discrimination that women face because of pregnancy. All it does is it gives our culture an easy out to basically be like, okay, like you're in a bad situation here. Let's help you by killing your child. And let's not actually address any of the, any of the underlying stuff that's going on. So in your mind, I know this is policy and you don't, you're not so into policy, but in your mind would making abortion more difficult or illegal in certain circumstances or whatever, you know, maybe even broad circumstances, while not simultaneously enacting family leave and certain health care initiatives for the women who now legally need to keep their children, okay? Would it be on the whole beneficial to enact those laws about abortion without simultaneously enacting the laws about the healthcare and whatnot, or must they be together? Like, like, let's say, you know, the Supreme court's like, Amy, you get to make the call here. We're going to overturn Roe v. Wade, but nothing else is going to change. Like it's not, we're not going to enact, you know, whatever this other, these mm-hmm. other things. What do you say in that instance? I think it would depend on where the culture is. I mean, I would absolutely want to, and in that form of violence and that form of discrimination, like I, there are a lot of arguments in, in the time of slavery that if we abolish slavery, that, you know, society would go to heck and, you know, like everything would just be awful because our society wasn't ready for it. And like, granted, like maybe society wasn't ready for it, but it doesn't mean that we should prolong that period of injustice just because society isn't, per se, ready for it. But I think it would necessitate a larger discussion about like the public policy in regards to making it illegal. Um, Because like prior to Roe, I'm not sure if you know, but um, women would not be punished for having an abortion. It was the abortion providers, people who provided the procedure that would be facing criminal charges. And so I think most pro-lifers would agree that that's a similar sort of model. But, like, I want to see, like, a complete overhaul of our justice system. Like, I want to see restorative justice models. So I want a model that will respect the inherent dignity, not only of the offended, so in the case of abortion, like, the child that was killed, but also the offender. Like, we want to take into account the humanity and the dignity of all parties and work to you know, have this, this restoration to society. We want to work to have this restitution for the death of the child, but not in a retributive way that seeks punishment just for the sake of punishment. Like we, if we truly want to honor the dignity of human beings, and especially in the case of abortion of, of the woman, then we can't just be looking at how can we punish you? We should be looking at you know, how has society done you wrong so that you felt like you had to do this? We should be looking at what did our education system do wrong so you didn't understand the humanity of the child? You know, we, we want to look at all these different facets 
So we're not just looking to punish for the sake of punishment. We're looking to really restore everyone involved to a sense of community and to the sense of dignity. So I don't feel like it's the kind of thing where it could just happen, but I don't think it would necessarily just happen without a large cultural shift because like if Roe is overturned, it's going to be on the basis of, in my opinion, that the preborn is a human being, that it's a member of our species that like that, that was like the hinge, the whole crux of Roe was a terrible argument, by the way, even pro-choice legal scholars will agree that Roe was an awful, awfully argued case. The whole crux of it was that they didn't know whether or not the unborn was human. And like scientifically, like that's, I feel like that's bogus, but like now we know more than ever. So like, there's not even a question. You just mean that they didn't know back then what the grouping of cells was like and if it was necessarily already going to be a human at some certain point and they just didn't have like the same technology we have now. I mean, I would, I would like to believe that, but honestly, like the arguments in the case were basically like, well, this religion believes this and this religion believes this and this religion believes this. So like, we don't really know. Honestly, if your religion says that the earth is flat, your religion is wrong on at least that point. I'm not going to, you know, say anything else about like what your religion might be right <laughs> or wrong on, but on that point, your religion is wrong. Yeah. If your religion says that life doesn't begin at fertilization, then your religion is wrong on at least that point. Religion shouldn't have any bearing on the legal rulings of a scientific question. You're saying, yeah, so you're you're not talking about the ethical question, which is at what point does a future human life have constitutional rights? That's a that's a different question than at what point does it a human life begin? You're saying. Right. So the thing is like in the in the ruling they they call it potential life. Potential life is a garbage term. I'm sorry. Like, like a sperm and an egg when they are separate is a potential life, I guess. But at the moment of fertilization, it's it's a life it's and more, it's a human yeah, being. It's more accurate to say it is a life that may or may not make it to term. Right. That's, a, that's right. scientifically I mean, accurate. Sure, sure. And I mean, the thing is, you can call a two-year-old a, a human life that may or may not make it to adolescence. Sure. <laughs> so, like, I, I just feel like that's a, a dehumanizing way to put it when you could just be like no like this this is a human being like sure like we all may or may not make it through the next 20 minutes but well there's but there just to push back a little bit i mean there is a question of at what point does a human being receive legally receive constitutional rights and right. you could and th- definitely that, argue that that, that does not happen before they're born i mean you could definitely argue that Oh, you could absolutely argue that. In my opinion, that's one of the only good pro-choice arguments. I'm going to ask you that later. Okay. <laughs> I often think it's really funny, actually, that like when I'm just having discussions with pro-choice people, I'm often like, I can argue this better than you. 
That's a good sign. That means you're not just erecting straw men and tearing them down. I mean, if if you that means you're really paying attention to the other side. That's a good. It's a good sign. Okay, we've got to talk about Trump and Neil Gorsuch, the new SCOTUS nominee. We're recording this on February 8th. I'm not sure when it's going to be coming out, but as of yet, we have not begun any hearings on Gorsuch, but we do know quite a bit about him. So let's talk about Gorsuch first. Is your kind of thinking even related to Supreme Court much, or is that not really your realm? I mean, it's something that me and my friends certainly talk about. Um, It's a little outside of my strength. Yeah. I guess uh, I mean, my husband's in law school right now. So it's something we've been talking about a little bit, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I might've been hoping for a different, a different nominee. How, in what way? Uh, I mean, I would like someone who's a little friendlier towards uh, LGBT people. <laughs> basically um, you, you basically are a pro-life activist who wanted a more progressive SCOTUS pick. Is what you're telling me. Um, you would have I mean, preferred yes, but, Merrick Garland but, or whoever Hillary would have nominated, probably. Maybe. I mean, it, the thing is, like, I, I I do want someone who is solidly, you know, pro life, who who understands the humanity of the preborn, who understands why, from a legal perspective, they are deserving of rights. But you're worried about the other attendant views that conservative judges might hold that, right. that go against your more consistent ethic of life. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's interesting. Well, that's that's very depolarizing just by itself. Uh, now, let's talk about Trump. What do you think about what he has done so far or what he represents or just kind of, you know, give me your take? Permission to speak freely. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) That thousands of people will hear. (laughs) I think the one thing I keep coming back to is Donald Trump does not represent me as a pro-lifer. You mean he hasn't put in the requisite thought to come to a consistent moral ethic of human life? (laughs) That's shocking. Honestly, like I've been talking about this for ages. I... I was included in a press release put out by Susan B. Anthony List, which is a very pro-life, generally conservative-leaning political action group, basically saying, like, we were never Trump. His policies and his rhetoric don't represent our pro-life perspective, et cetera, et cetera. By the time the election came around, I am fairly certain I am the only one on that list who did not cave. Hmm. He represents this ideology that is so self-centered and disregards the, the inherent dignity of human beings. It's absolutely infuriating to me that I had so many pro-life colleagues who I felt compromise on their moral philosophy by supporting him. 
I just, I really, I, even to this day, like I, I don't know how to react to pro-lifers who are dead set on supporting him because his, you know, his immigration and refugee policy is obviously contrary to the dignity of these refugees and immigrants that need to come in and need safety. His dehumanizing rhetoric towards women is absolutely infuriating to me as a pro-life feminist. And on top of that, is he actually pro-life? <laughs> like all these people are, you know, voting for him because they say he's pro-life. And like, I honestly don't, I don't believe it. I, I don't trust him as far as I can throw him and I'm not very strong. I think that Trump's win and his support from evangelicals, if nothing else, reveals a deep, deep cynicism for politics that has become the norm. You can tell. I mean, people just assume that every politician is constantly spouting bullshit, that they have no actual beliefs of their own. If you believe that, then who cares? Might as well be Trump. Doesn't matter. Whoever's going to get the policies you want enacted because they're all full of shit all the time. That's essentially the only way you can vote for Trump unless there's one other argument, which is, well, he's that way, but he will surround himself with people who are not that way or checks and balances of government will kind of hem him in or something. And we can we can stand four years of this guy because these other things will will be fine. But you definitely you can't. I don't think there's any one who can believe that he is like a person of solid character and, and principles. I don't think anybody has made that claim. I, I think the the number one thing that I heard from my pro-life friends who, who actually voted for him was, well, he's not Hillary. <laughs> and I get it. Like the, these two are probably the worst set of candidates that I've ever seen on a national stage. Like Hillary not only supports abortion, but she also supports war. She also supports the death penalty. Like she's honestly probably one of the most pro death candidates that I've ever seen. But Donald Trump was certainly no grade better in my book. Hmm. So I, I, I understand like both sides were like, Oh, the other one's so awful. And so they felt the need to, you know, like make these compromises and vote for Hillary or vote for Trump. But I, I just, I don't understand. I, I'm not the kind of person that can vote from a place of fear. I have to, I have to vote my conscience. So, so a couple of weeks ago now we had the women's March on Washington and there were attendant marches, you know, around the country. And one of the bigger news stories about them was the exclusion of any pro-life groups from being sponsors. They were still invited to participate as marchers, but they were not allowed to be sponsors. Uh, did Life Matters Journal make any attempt to become a sponsor before that happened? Did you have any actual brush up against this as the leader of an organization? Mm-hmm. So we began our planning to attend the Women's March November 11th, which was like the day after the Women's March was announced. Yeah. So we, we've been planning to go all along. 
we applied to be partners uh, the same day as New Wave Feminists. Um, and, and they're like our, you know, one of our sister groups who work really closely with them. And uh, we never heard back. Like nothing. Hmm. Never heard back. Um, Destiny, of course, with New Wave Feminists, New Wave Feminists was accepted as a partner. And then their partnership was revoked. The interesting thing to note is like the, the reason we applied at all to be a partner is because on their website and on their Facebook page and everything that was up that was from them officially had no mention of abortion. Yeah. Like Planned, Planned Parenthood was a, a core sponsor, of course, but in all of their, their mission and vision was all very consonant with things that we stand for. You know, it was all about human dignity and women's rights are human rights. And we're like, yes, we're totally on board. We totally agree. And, uh, you know, they, they even put out a set of principles to stand by. And in those, in those principles were the Kingian principles of nonviolence. Yeah, I noticed that. So I was like, woo, yeah, totally. Yeah, I was really, when I read those principles, I was like, I was like really impressed. Yeah. So I, I was totally on board, totally with it. I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like these principles are all so in line with what we stand for. There's nothing here that is contrary to our mission. So we're totally going for it. And late December, they added their unity principles and it, I mean, no, it might've been early January. I don't know, sometime after Christmas, they added their unity principles and in the unity principles was included reproductive health care. And we were like, okay, that's cool. We support nonviolent reproductive health care. Still no mention of abortion. Yeah. So we're like, okay, this is great. This is awesome. So us and New Wave Feminists apply to be partners. New Wave Feminists is accepted. After they were accepted, they updated their unity principles, the reproductive health care section to include abortion. Mm. It was January 13th when they added it. January 14th, everything went down with new wave feminists. Yeah. You know, the internet blew up and we were disappointed because we had thought for so long, wow, you know, like this is going to be totally in line with what we stand for. There's no issues here, but we knew we still had to go. We knew that, you know, despite new wave feminists getting, you know, disinvited from the partners that we still had to go and we had to represent this holistic perspective that respects the rights of both women and their children. We had to, you know, present this sane pro-life perspective to these grassroots feminists who are going to be there because we agree that women's rights are human rights. We just don't think that violence against another human being can ever be a human right. So, okay. There's obviously some drama then between the women's March leadership and groups that seem to you to be totally consonant. Intersectionality is the word that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. But regardless of that, are you heartened by this collective action? Are you heartened? And actually, let me say this, whether or not they were allowing pro-life groups to be sponsors, 
you know, we've participated in the first two actions so far. We, mm-hmm. my wife and I sent letters to our Congress people and we are forming a huddle, which is like action mm-hmm. number two. And, right. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think most of the people in our huddle are broadly speaking going to be kind of pro-life. And we included in our letter that we were, you know, largely left leaning. We, we wrote different letters, but my letter anyway mm-hmm. said, I am mostly vote democratic, but I'm, I favor compromise between pro-life and pro-choice groups. I'm not militant about this. I want to see abortions reduced. I care about these issues. You know, I I was able to just write out the seven or eight issues that are most important to me. And I thought that was kind of awesome. So that's been my experience, which I just want to throw out there as I Mm -hmm. ask you, what do you think about that movement in general? Five million women or female allies marching Mm -hmm. in one day. What do you think? I think it's a phenomenal show of the potential and the solidarity of, I mean, of women going forward, but also just of this, this large intersectional movement. I think the only thing, honestly, that discourages me or frustrates me is for eight years, I, as, you know, a a left-leaning person who is very anti-war, was waiting for an anti-war rally to attend. Hmm. Because, like, I went to college and Obama was elected. And, like, that happened very quickly. (laughs) And so I never got the opportunity to attend an anti-war rally as, as a student, you know. And, you know, it's been twice as long since I've been in college. So... I, I had lots of hope that if Trump was elected, that the left would rediscover their principles of protest. I am both heartened that they have and discouraged to know that it was there all along and they sat by while the Obama administration engaged in drone warfare and wars in seven different nations. Hmm. So I just would like to hope that this will be a long lasting and grassroots effort that really stays with people regardless of who is in office, because I am sick and tired of people only standing up against, you know, the people of the opposite party. Our voices matter more when we are standing up against the people of our own side. Yeah. You know, as as someone who is left-leaning, my voice matters more when I am talking to Democrats because I need to be holding them accountable for their positions on abortion. I need to make sure, you know, I need to let them know that their position on abortion should be consonant with a pro- like an actually progressive agenda of giving more rights to more humans. My voice matters more there. And... You know, so right now, like, we're all upset and we're all outraged at Donald Trump. And, of course, like, as a pro-lifer, my voice matters a lot there as well. But I just want to see a long-lasting movement that is unafraid to critique those in power, even if those in power are of our same tribe. Yeah, and again, I don't know when these will air, but probably it'll be last week. Michael Ware made this exact point at the end of his interview, which is 
you know, we have all these political independents now, people who self-identify as independents. And the more people end up as independents, the fewer there are in the parties. And the more that the parties are moved by their activist base and none of their moderates and nobody kind of questioning the party line. And what you're saying is, no, like rejoin the party and express yourself. And in, in fact, you end up doing, you end up affecting more change within your own party and, and modifying it. You know, if, if for instance, the democratic party were able to moderate its views on abortion and pick up 5% of Republicans who really want a bunch of these things, but just can't get behind the strong abortion stance, maybe even 10% of Republicans, certainly younger Republicans would mm-hmm. be, would probably flock in droves. Um, that's an example of working within your party, trying to broaden its reach and also sharpen its vision. Um, so I, I think I, I couldn't agree with that more. The more I listen to you, the more that nonviolence is at the core of everything that you believe. And we could probably do a whole episode on nonviolence, but why don't you just give us a couple minutes about it? You know, someone who has not thought about it much, why is it something that they need to take a little more seriously? I would say it depends on the person that I'm talking to, how I would approach the issue. But the reason why nonviolence is such a necessary part of what I stand for is because I believe in the inherent dignity of human beings. Nonviolence is the just response to other humans. Hmm. So other human beings, another way of putting it, are always ends in themselves and are never means to another end. Precisely. I love Kant. Okay. And so for you, that would include the preborn. And so if there's going to be a disagreement about abortion, it needs to come after the agreement that all human beings are ends and not means. And so the only real argument against abortion then would be that the preborn are not humans yet or they they are not endowed with those, those rights. I'm not saying that right. you, I mean, obviously you don't think that, that argument would work, but would you say that's right. kind of the only place you can really argue if you, if you keep a, if you keep this view of human dignity? I mean, if you, if you support this view of human dignity, then I think, I think the only way to, to get around that and still support abortion is to believe that the preborn are not human. Yeah. If you do believe that, all humans have this inherent dignity, then nothing you do or no amount of inaction, like no disability or no circumstance could deprive you of this inherent dignity. So that, so that means like for the pre-born, the, the most typical justifications for discrimination against the pre-born are things like size, like, excuse me, I am not going to be sizist. I am not going to say that because I am 5'10 and a half and my husband is 5'10 that I somehow deserve more rights than he does. I am not going to say that location is a good reason to discriminate against someone. I'm not going to say that it's okay to harm people, 
you know, who live in the slums because they live there as opposed to me in my nice, you know, lower middle class house in the city. Like, I'm not going to say that location is a good reason to discriminate against someone. I'm not going to say that, um, you know, level of development or ability is a good reason to discriminate against someone that's, that's just ableist. Like, I'm not going to say like somebody who has to, you know, be fed and lives in a wheelchair somehow deserves less rights than I do. So the thing that we have to come back to then is what is it that gives us rights as humans if none of these things are things that we'd be comfortable using as metrics to discriminate against certain classes of human beings in other cases. Yeah. And, you know, there are some good things things that you can try to come back to. So I often, from a Kantian perspective, um, it's rational capacity uh, or like the, the species rational capacity. And so as, as humans, as human beings all have this rational capacity, then it means that we all deserve to be treated as ends. Yeah. So except people with mental disabilities don't have the same rational capacities. I mean, I think that's ableist. <laughs> I, I think no, I'm, that- I'm, no, it's it's not. It's just saying, look, if rational capacity is the grounding for human value, then a lack of rational capacity would mean less value. Well, Which is why I said, like, species rational. Like, okay. The, the, species, the species capacity, right? So, well, so like, this is where this species, is where pers- species. Because, like, I, I think it's hard to delineate like especially like you know we have people with trapped in syndrome right who like have rational capacity but aren't yeah. able to communicate, Can't communicate. It. um it's like how how can we even know who is rational and who's not i guess what i'm saying is <laughs> you know? all i'm what i'm pushing back on is not your the source of your argument but the grounding of human value this is why I am one of the reasons that I am a theist is because I think mm-hmm. that God provides a far more robust grounding for human value, which I, I feel like I know intrinsically exists. Mm-hmm. I just think that God provides a better argumentative backing for that than uh, most humanist arguments that I've heard but we're kind of getting into the weeds here we'll just say we'll just agree for this for the sake of this conversation that you have a very firm belief in the dignity of all human life and that's where all of this flows from so i think Mm -hmm. that's that's laudable commendable okay so last thing and we do this we try to do this with everybody our depolarizing moment i want you to speak to the left and the right here in some critical terms so First of all, I am a stereotypical pro-choice liberal, just kind of generic. Okay. What am I missing that you think I should be looking more into, thinking about more, considering if my worldview is underdeveloped in, in what areas? I think my, my question to you would be, First of all, like, like, would you say that you support human rights, broadly speaking? And most most liberals we'll would say yes. be like, yeah, absolutely. 
the question is then, is there anyone that you're leaving out? Hmm. Is there any class of humans that you are maybe unwittingly discriminating against and um, allowing for systemic violence to be perpetuated against them? Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, and some people will answer that. Yes, there are. I, I had a conversation with a very liberal friend of mine who's the singer of a punk band. And, you yeah. know, I brought this up to him. Like, if you if we found out that some a child in the womb was going to have a disability, like, do you think that the government should just like kill all of those kids and like remove disabilities from the earth? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, okay, we don't agree on that. <laughs> but at least, you know, I, I, I got him to think about it and he had to say, yeah, right. I, yeah, I, I do. He's like, yeah, I think that what matters most is the welfare of people who are already alive. Okay, cool. Well, at least we can agree to disagree on that and we can know why we disagree. So mm-hmm. now let's say I am your stereotypical pro-life conservative, just generic. What am I missing? What do you say to me? I mean, it's a similar sort of conversation. I think, you know, you ask, well, like, do you support the right to life? Broadly speaking, and most people are like, yeah, yeah, I support the right to life. Like, well, is there anyone that you are leaving out of that circle of concern when it comes to the right to life? Because often it's death row inmates. It's, you know, prisoners at Guantanamo. It's, you know, even children who are behind enemy lines were bombed by drones and maybe another way of phrasing that is is the right to life as important to you as the security of the refugee border or something like that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. go on though you know the the thing i come back to is for both sides you know the the pre-born child may at one point be you know, a, a child caught behind enemy lines might end up in Guantanamo, might be facing the death penalty. Would you fight for their life at those other points in time if you also fight for them while they're in the womb? For the liberal, I would say, you know, like the, this this person who's facing the death penalty was at one point a preborn child. Would you have fought for them to be killed while they were in the womb, even though you're fighting for their life now? Because in both cases, if you have this double standard, what you see is not not an honest respect for human beings. It's more like, um, I don't know, maybe you or any of your listeners had, had friends like this when you were in middle school who had like a million and one boyfriends or a million and one girlfriends and like they were always dating someone new, you know, next week, right? You, you, it comes back to this idea of like, do they, do they love the person that they're in a relationship with? Or do they just love the idea of love? So let's, let's be better than just loving the idea of human rights. And let's actually love the humans that are behind those rights. Let's actually care about them. Let's actually support them and not just this, idea of what rights is. That's amazing. Amy, this has been a killer conversation. I did not expect to get into so much ethics and philosophy. I am greatly pleasantly surprised by that was, was pleasantly surprised by that. Uh, 
where can people find you online if they would like to be in touch? Sure. So uh, you can find our website at propeaceprolife.org. And you can find us on Facebook at Life Matters Journal. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Life Matters JRNL. Apparently, journal is too long for both of those platforms. So, um, and uh, if you're interested in following me, uh, I have a Facebook public page, like a fan page. And then I also have my uh, Twitter handle, which is peace and all life. Thank you so much, Amy Murphy. Keep up the work and thanks for engaging in like, uh, some, some back and forth, some devil's advocate stuff there. And for helping us consider no matter which side of the spectrum we're on, uh, being more critical of, of our own tribe. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dan. Next week, we dive into the question of whether or not human beings descended from other animals and how that has polarized religious communities and how that relates back to political polarization. That was a super interesting conversation. I can't wait to share it with you guys. You can find me on Twitter, D-A-N-K-O-C-H. Join the Depolarized Podcast discussion group on Facebook. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.